religion, politics, philosophy, and science. You will be challenged. You will question everything you thought you believed. Prepare to be. Welcome back, everybody. It's me again, Thomas. And again, joining me this week is JJ. How you doing? How's it going? I'm good. Oh, so, how's your week on? Man, it's been pretty cool. The kids finished up this uh, fall semester, and so they're on break as of Friday, and they're spending the weekend with me. Usually they go to, the mom, go to mom's on the weekend, and uh, they're with me through the week while they do school since I can work from home and uh, help out with that. But they're, uh, they're pulling the whole weekend through and uh, we're just having a big time. Nice. Got a, got, got holiday plans this year. Uh, no, who does? <laughs> Not me. I get to work through the holidays. Um, my parents always, and uh, I'll be with my parents because I already am with my parents currently because mm. I live in the basement due to a really weird situation, <laughs> series of circumstances beyond everyone's control. Hashtag determinism. Uh, oh. Hashtag feminism. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we uh, every Christmas, my parents buy a ton of seafood and we do a big seafood feast. That sounds fun. So we'll be doing crab legs and fried shrimp and all kinds of fancy potatoes. I love fancy potatoes. Oh man, I love cooking. Uh, I, I, I could ha- talk about cooking for a whole podcast. I, well, I love eating, so <laughs> I'm <laughs> not. Let me tell you stories. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of cooking, but I, I I tend to do a decent amount of it. I just I it's not one of my favorite hobbies. I just do it at a necessity. But uh, yeah, uh, same here. I mean, not big plans. We're not traveling. We're not going to see family. Just uh, me and Sarah uh, this year, and I get to work on the actual holidays. So. Um, the days I have off will actually be not not on the holidays, but that is that is life in telecom. But uh, wanted to uh, we're gonna pick up from last week, right? We were uh, last last week we were talking about um, well, we kind of left off with uh, where we're heading into you know anti science uh, thinking in America, right? That was the plan because I think that th- that's the next like. The next place, the next little part of the puzzle to look at. Mm -hmm. Like, why is there... What causes people to reject general scientific consensus? Right. Well, and I mean, I don't necessarily know that people reject the scientific process always. Uh, I think that it's just not necessarily... uh, If I can kind of speak anecdotally there um, from my own experience... I, I never really was that opposed to science, even though I had very different beliefs in my past from, you know, scientific consensus. But my problem, at least for me, was I didn't really understand what science was properly. Um, I didn't realize, you know, that it's it's not just a body of evidence, it's actually a process. And uh, I think kind of getting my my toes wet in 
you know, finally learning what science actually is and being able to kind of adopt that mentality um, made me open up a lot more to scientific conclusions when I kind of understood the process behind it. Um, but maybe that's not the case for everybody. Um, I think that helps. A lot of people don't, like if you asked someone, like, what is science? Uh Um, you're going to get some very, I I assume you'll get some variation of some common themes. You're going to get people that talk about science being the thing, like the, the rules of reality that people discover. Right. And, um, what makes something true in the world? Like when we're talking about, you know, physical objects and we want to know what's true about this object, we would turn to science. Right. Maybe kind of a, uh, the idea that it's just kind of figuring out how things work generally. Well, Yeah, like, but there are, like, things come up when we do that. Like, uh, I'm a big fan. I've read The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn at least three times cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And if people haven't read this book, it's not very long. And everyone should read it because it changed what people thought of science, like in professional circles. Thomas like what? Kuhn. What do scientists think scientist is? Yeah, K U H N. Yep, I I know somebody uh, with a, a Kuhn, so I already know the spelling. Oh, convenient. Yes. Um, yeah, he completely. He was a contemporary of another famous philosopher of science, Karl Popper, mm-hmm. and Karl Popper is uh, like really famous because Karl Popper asked, "How do you know if someone's doing good science?" Versus bad science. Like, mm-hmm. let's take a, a, a... Why is astronomy good science and astrology bad science? Okay. Um, Karl Popper went very in-depth on the idea of falsifiability. Right. And that's what makes good science good and bad science bad. Right. Um, yeah, because if you can't so, falsify something, then... How do you know if it's true? Now, uh, it, or at least it, how do you know? If, interesting. How do you know if it's false, rather, or not false? <laughs> right. I guess it's kind of hard to ever how, actually know. How do you know. dismiss it? Oh yeah, go ahead. No, it, it, I, I, I get what you're saying. It's like how do you dismiss something as a possibility? Right. Like if the moon is made of green cheese. Mm-hmm. Like we can falsify that and dismiss that possibility. Right. Um, there are some weird issues with falsifiability, um, but I but let's let's put a pin in that. <laughs> right. Because because right now the, the, we just want to like have an overview of what science is, and so Karl Popper was talking about falsifiability, and Thomas Kuhn came in shortly after that, and they were both active like in the I think 40s like the 50s I think 1956 but I'm not sure of the year uh-huh. is when the structure scientific revolutions came out but like the mid 20th century for for decades like these guys were around and writing about the philosophy of science um 
Thomas Kuhn talked about how in science, people always just use whatever the best idea currently is. Mm -hmm. And then they replace that best idea with a new idea when eventually the best idea no longer works. And Karl Popper would be like, well, the old idea was falsified. But you can never know that. That's always a thing that just comes up, was the point of Thomas Kuhn. Mm. And um, so people realize, like, to, to gloss over a lot of uh, details that other people are way more qualified to talk about than I am. <laughs> um, people realize that science does get things wrong. Right. And in every point where science was getting things wrong, because science is what was happening at the time. Like when uh, Tycho Brahe, remember I talked about the guy getting his nose sliced off? Yeah, yeah. Last podcast, yeah. I looked it up. That's Tycho Brahe. Okay. That's who uh, Johannes Kepler went to work with, because mm -hmm. Tycho Brahe had a lot of money and had the best observatory in Europe. Like, dude was wealthy, <laughs> which is why he had a fancy gold nose. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but at the time, Tycho Brahe's, and I mentioned this last time, like Tycho Brahe had developed a geocentric model of the solar system and sailors could use Tycho Brahe's model to make predictions about navigation. Mm -hmm. Like there was a certain utility to it. Right. And that's what people get into. Like when we talk about, you know, electronics and mechanical engineering, the reason we we're like, oh, that's a really good science mm -hmm. is because it turns out that it's really, really useful all the time. Right. So Tycho Brahe's geocentric model was useful. So that was the science of the day. That was the consensus opinion of most of the scientists. Mm -hmm. And when Kepler and Copernicus developed their ideas of a, you know, a, a heliocentric solar system. And man, I'm, I'm sure I'm screwing this up because I'm not <laughs> a science historian, but so like the timetable might be sketchy, but like when they developed, cause they did, you know, Copernicus was the guy that developed the, uh, the G, uh, heliocentric solar system model. Right. It wasn't as useful and it was considered fringe science. So when people are anti-science, I think that some of that is them relying on the knowledge that consensus science is wrong. And some philosophers of science, even today, will argue that technically it's still wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not. It's, I mean, it's never really fully understood. You, you can't have a, a complete understanding of the universe, at least not practically. <laughs> So, yeah, you, you, you are always going to have a flawed understanding. And what Thomas Kuhn's big insight was, was that when you develop new understandings, those new understandings, or there's one of his, it, it probably is controversial one, but I, I like it, is the idea of incommensurability, commiserability, mm -hmm. the idea that when a new scientific idea is brought up to challenge an old idea, they don't work together like like Newtonian mechanics when it was replaced by general relativity mm -hmm. 
they don't use Newtonian mechanics in astronomy anymore. Right. Like it's completely gone. Newtonian mechanics, when pe- uh, like William Lane Craig and a lot of his debates, like, or not a lot, one of his debates I was listening to was talking about how, well, Newton got it mostly right. He was approximately right. It's important to stress that Newton was completely wrong. That's not how the world works. Mm-hmm. It has been completely replaced. We don't kind of use Newtonian mechanics when we're doing astronomy. Right. And, and, that complete replacement of science is something that people do kind of intuit. Hmm. And so I think that that undergirds a lot of people's comfort in rejecting a consensus opinion when scientists have it. Like they can go back, like when they're talking about, say, global warming. Right. When a lot of people reject the idea of global warming because 97% of all scientists agree with it, but 3% don't. And like 99, like it's just stupid in agreement among climate scientists that anthropogenic warming is happening. Right. Like it's just stupid agreement. Mm-hmm. Like it's not even a little. Yeah, yeah. People are like, well, you know, we used to think that uh, – classical mechanics was true and scientists used to think like a bunch of scientists there was a general consensus that the earth was the center of the universe but we reject we we rejected it and so i think that they harbor like they use that as a hedge to hide behind so are you saying you think that um the reason people maybe aren't so willing to adopt scientific consensus is that um, just the, the fact that there is uh, there is a history of scientific consensus being wrong and being overturned, and so people are just intuitively skeptical of it? No, I think they use that as an excuse. Okay. Um, I... And may, well, I, I should hesitate, like, hey, let me hedge. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is part of the web of underlying beliefs that drives them to hold the beliefs that they do. Right. I mean, personally, um, in interacting with people and for myself, um, I know that generally people tend to be somewhat uncomfortable with um, not knowing things uh, or, you know, there being an unknown Um People tend to feel more comfortable whenever there's a more, I don't know, a higher level of confidence or a, and some people take that to the extreme of, of needing like absolute knowledge. Cause that's kind of one of the things that I was brought up with was that, um, you know, knowing at least in our belief, cause we were, um, you know, fundamentalist Christians, uh, our belief was, you know, that you have to know that you know that you know that you're saved or that you're going to heaven or that, oh, you know. Oh, that's the KK principle. Right. So the, oh. just kind of that driving home of that absolute knowledge. Um, and that's kind of what made people feel good and confident and happy. Um, and that idea that, you know, and, and this was brought up a lot about, um, you know, the, the evil naturalist scientists that wanted to disprove God by, you know, introducing evolution was that, yeah, but they don't know 
that that's only a theory and uh you know theories have been disproven time and time again so that's that's really not a solid knowledge like we have um and maybe that's only really applicable to that kind of a culture maybe that's not you know maybe that doesn't really speak to the larger part of our society uh that's just kind of what my experience was i don't know man that always just really bugs me when people are like you have to, they know that they know something yeah because <laughs> that that invites an idea like you can say that you know something like i know that i am sitting in front of a computer i'm maximally certain uh-huh. um do i know that i know that i'm sitting in front of a computer gosh i hope not because <laughs> if that's if if that needs to be the case that means that i need to know that I know I'm sitting in front of a computer. Well, do I know that I know that I know that I'm sitting in front of a computer? Apparently, if this if this approach to knowing things is permissible, then you are required to know that you know something for as many knows as you can put in front of the no. Right. Just an like obs- I know that 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 I know. Basically, like just- if you can know that you can know things, there is no way to stop requiring you to know that you know that thing and it becomes brutally circular well and i mean to me that's that's like the very definition of unreasonable you're unwilling to reason with the with you know uh, anything that could contradict your position um well you, you you must be unreasonable like at least in that part, because you, like as I just explained, if you're willing to think that that is a reasonable response, it means you don't understand the consequences of what you're claiming. Right. So, like I said, I, that might that might be kind of a limited um, perspective in society. I don't necessarily know that mine was that typical although i would i guess argue that it's probably more typical in the united states than maybe in some other places um but then again we are we actually are fairly anti-science in america compared to some other places maybe that kind of just that kind of thinking is a as a contributor um yeah i think that uh so let, 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 what do we got so far? We've got the idea that science can be wrong, right? As part of a web of justifications. Mm-hmm. What else? What other threads can we apply to the web of justification? As to what is legitimate science or what is good science? As as to what is like when they reject, trying to view it from the anti-science, and I say anti-science, and and maybe I should choose a different word for to to. For the person that rejects the consensus view of science. Okay. Um, One of the things is that they look at consensus science and can point out historically where consensus science has been wrong. And they can point out that consensus science is historically wrong on a regular basis. True. Now, Now, there are ways to address this. But let's. I want to. I think we. It would be good for us to see if there are any other threads in this web that we can start picking at. Like what else? Like I think that uh, another thing that makes them reject consensus science is 
a commitment to previously held beliefs, like an emotional commitment right. to a previously held belief. Basically, a a a, um, a, a bias towards uh, a, a particular conclusion. Right. Which is something rather that, than a method. Right. Which is something that um, in any time I've I've dealt with people who were uh, scientists. Um, it's actually very common for people uh, in the science community to be very enthusiastic about not being committed to any particular conclusion and even getting excited um, at finding, you know, that something that could overturn their, their understanding. Um, so that to me, that, that commitment to trying to prove something true that you, you want to be true or that you already believe that, that alone seems to be antithetical to the scientific method. Um, yeah, sometimes I think though, like I, a lot of people, I don't know, like, I don't think that there's a problem with having a hypothesis and investigating to see if the hypothesis is true. No. Yeah, of course. I think maybe just the, the idea of always being willing to accept that it, it, very well might not. Yeah, the, there's a difference between researching and conclusion shopping. Right. And I think conclusion shopping, and that's, like, it's hard to not do on a layman's level. Right. I think people conclude, like, let's, we were talking about, you know, the kind of, uh, the kind of information sources that we were interested in. Mm-hmm. Like, how many podcasts and, uh, you know, YouTube, how much YouTube content, books, uh, articles, like, if you stack them all up for the last month that you've looked at, how many of them are going to be uh, leftist or socialist and neoliberal or alt right? Right. How would your stack look? Yeah, mine. Maybe one might argue. I mean, personally, mine's not fifty-fifty right now, anyway. Um, I, I think most people's are not. No, I, I mean, I I definitely um, consume more of you know one end of media than the other. Although I I I think I do make some effort to try to consume a variety because in my experience growing up, whenever I started to do that, literally my first. Um, my first media consumption that was outside of my normal scope was listening to NPR. And for me, that was a big challenge to, you know, kind of what I was used to, which was very uh, conservative media. Um, and even that, which now I don't view as very far left at all, it's it's actually quite quite neutral. Um, or at least it's, it's not, maybe it's more middle, I should say. But... Um, I did start to realize that contrasting different perspectives against each other, while it doesn't necessarily always give you the right answer, it at least gives you um, a, a little different insight into your or and, and it can kind of challenge some of the positions or arguments made on another side of a subject. So I actually really like that, and I do try to consume you know some media that directly contradicts, you know, everything that I believe just so that I'm, I'm 
if nothing else, understanding where other people are coming from, even if I disagree with it. Uh, and sometimes uh, valid points are made, and um, I will disagree with you know someone who I otherwise might think is making a, a pretty good argument whenever I hear a good criticism of it. So uh, to me, it makes me feel like it's it's kind of holding those views a little bit more accountable. But even at that, I'm not like I said, it's not fifty fifty. It's it's uh, definitely going to skew more towards what I what I do tend to agree with. Well, and and I don't know that like it's hard to say whether or not it should. Like, if I were to, somebody were to ask me, how do you explain the diversity of life? Uh-huh. It would be a very, very big stack of papers that I would reference talking about, you know, the modern uh, modern synthesis of evolution. Right. A big stack of papers. It would be a very, very tiny sheet of paper that would sum up my conclusions right. on the idea of young earth cre- creationism as an alternative explanation. Right. Like there is no merit to entertaining. And I'll just say this for the podcast, for all the you know potential controversial is- listeners out there. There's no merit to entertaining the idea that anything except for evolution explains the diversity of life on planet Earth. Yeah. And like it's, it's, you know, I don't know your opinion on it, but for me, it's non negotiable. And it's non negotiable because of the data. I, I agree with that because of, for what little my, you know, informal, I didn't have a formal education in biology. I didn't actually go, you know, and get degrees in the subject. So it's, you know, I don't have, you know, uh, that kind of expertise. But, um, in actually looking at the arguments that were made by creationists and those being the views that I held and trying to convince myself of them and just seeing what science uh, or what scientists had to say, you know, in response to those arguments, um, they overwhelmingly had much better information um, and much better explanations that were much more useful because they could actually right. make predictions and it actually was a working model that accurately describes the process to the point that they could make predictions and look back and investigate, you know, look for physical record and then find them based on their predictions that they had made. And so that tells me that there's some degree of accuracy there because it's working and creationism doesn't have that element. It's all post hoc rationalizations and, that isn't there is no utility in that um and they're not even that good (laughs) i mean when you really look into it so it doesn't take you know getting a master's degree in biology to understand how bad those arguments are so i i would totally agree that you know that is by far the best explanation that we have for the diversity of life um there's i mean hands down there's really nothing that really actually competes with that um I th- and like, I think that's one of the the key things about the way scientific consensus has changed from the 1600s or the pre-scientific revolution, the pre-enlightenment period, mm-hmm. to today. Is when we talk about the evidence that justified, like you know, going back to Tycho Brahe and Copernicus. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about the evidence that ended up justifying believing that the earth goes around the sun versus the sun going around the earth, Uh 
there wasn't a lot. Like it just was a little better mm-hmm. and made a little better predictions. And it took decades for those little better predictions to finally edge out the idea of a, heli- uh, a geocentric solar system. Right. Like when we talk about the evidence for evolution, it's a stupid big pile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Literal mountains. I like mountains and mountains. Like if you go to, you know, it's a scholar, is it scholar.google.com? Mm-hmm. That's Google where you can look up the papers. Okay. And you, you can look up, you know, famous papers on evolution and it will show you how many works cite these papers. Yeah. And we're talking like, oh man, I, I kind of want to do it just to see like how many times the origin of species has been cited. <laughs> um, yeah, but like it's mounds. We're talking tens and hundreds of thousands of you know, of, of scientific papers like genetics and the origin of species is cited 8,000 times. Ecology and the origin of species is cited almost 2,000 times. Um, yeah, like there are different entries for the origin of species that all clock in at a thousand each. Like the, the, this stuff gets like, there's hundreds of thousands of man hours of scientific research that is built upon the scientific research here. Like it's the, the weight of information is huge and that doesn't mean it's true, but it means that like, if you imagine like two walls tipping into each other with a, you know, like a, like two dams and they both got water on behind them and they're pushing at each other. For the dam of some other alternative to evolution to overcome evolution as the prevailing theory would require a massive amount of research pressure to explain anomalies that it's seeing. And that just doesn't exist in the case of evolution. Like, there's, like, no published papers that show that the conclusion of young earth creationism or intelligent design can be used to make predictions that we see. Like if you look, you can sometimes find young earth papers on Google scholar. If you look up the title, they'll be cited like 19 times. Like in, and the example I was giving was just pulling up the origin of species. Like we can talk about, you know, Evo Devo papers and we can talk about genetics and macroevolution in, on in genetics like we're not just talking about papers we're talking about journals of papers that have been running for years if not decades and i think that that idea that consensus science could be wrong because it has been wrong in the past fails to grab at the weight of consensus that changes over time and that's not even just with a within a single field of study multiple scientific fields of study without having to intend to have come to the same conclusions and made predictions for each other. I mean, you can, you can look at biologically, um, you know, the kind of predictions that were made at, as to what we would find in the fossil record, and then we found them. Um, so the conclusion, you know, has been converged upon by multiple different angles, uh, which just to me makes it even more to me, that that paints a picture of us looking at something that is actually there from different angles. 
um, and describing the same thing because they they all converge on the same conclusion. Yeah, it, it, it's and that that the disparate types of evidence converging on the same conclusion is evidence in itself. Right. Um, and I feel like anti-science, like the idea that scientific consensus has been wrong in the past isn't a robust enough rejection to serve as an excuse for dismissing you know what the consensus scientists on most topics today and here's kind of the way that i look at it and it's that you should always proportion your confidence in something to the amount of evidence in favor of it um and with that said you know that you should never have absolute confidence in anything because you never have absolute knowledge of anything so you know while you can't ever fully entirely understand everything in the universe, you can have really high degrees of evidence that shows something, you know, to be accurate. And to the degree that you have that evidence, you can proportion your your confidence in it and be reasonable. And that's where I think that, you know, with with um with previous understandings that were later overturned, with our understanding at the time, I think it was entirely reasonable for us to accept that that was very likely true until we had reason to believe otherwise. Otherwise, you're in order to not believe that, you would have to contradict what evidence was available, which admittedly, you know, back then maybe wasn't quite as robust as some of the things that we have now, like like evolution um, or, you know, the fact that the Earth is round, which is apparently still a big controversy with um, more people than I was aware of, but, um, Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, just because we've uh, maybe not always had as refined of a process, you know, scientifically doesn't mean that conclusions can't still be useful. Um, In fact, they're incredibly useful. Uh, It's, it's actually really amazing what we can do with science and predict outcomes very accurately, uh, like you you mentioned um, back with the you know early um, during the COVID crisis with uh, the making predictions on you know what how bad outbreaks were going to be uh, depending on when they you know when they shut things down. Um, that's all very useful information that we get a great amount of utility out of, and I, I to me it almost seems like it's. It's just a matter of not really truly understanding that process or understanding the information as, as maybe where the disconnect is for a lot of people. I don't know. Well, I think, I think that it's hard to give up. Like, I, I'm not convinced that people change their minds based on evidence. That's fair, yeah. Um... I think people, I, and I don't know, I almost don't know what I mean by, by saying it that way, but like there is a resistance to giving up things that you are committed to. And I think that we can also pinpoint a certain degree of that resistance to a tribe. Like I'm still like big on the idea that like 
there are some people that because their beliefs make them part of a tribe or a community, they are less likely to give up those beliefs because those beliefs are part of their community identity. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the belief, and I think that we have great evidences for this. I think there are great, like, it, like we can look at, you know, Jonestown. And we can look at Scientology, and we can look at uh, like the seventh. It's there are easy places to pick cherries here that th- we have no reason to assume aren't part of the rest of the tree. Right. Um, people have believed crazy, crazy things that I mean, people generally from all walks of life would be like, "That's crazy." except for the people in that community where they'll be like, we're not crazy. You're crazy. (laughs) And it's the belief. It is the fact that their community is the cost of giving up that belief that creates an impediment to changing their mind. So then what would you maybe say to people who maybe once belonged to a group and held that as part of their identity and then because they were presented with evidence to the contrary, changed their position. I think that commitment to a community is uh, a brute thing. I think that some people are genetically predisposed to be more committed to community than others. That might be true. Actually. And I think this is a hypothesis. Like, let me first, like, that's that's just a hypothesis <laughs> yeah. that I operate under. I have done, you know, absolutely zero published work justifying that. Um, but you know, that's okay. I, I think that uh, that's that that's where I'm placing my bets. Yeah. I also think that that isn't. I seem to be implying that that's kind of genetic and ingrained and like hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's, that's true so much, but I think that commitments to a community might need more than one thread cut before you've cut the cord. Right. Like a lot of people stop believing in Christianity because they were abused at church. Mm-hmm. But then after not being a part of the church and no longer needing to commit themselves to the ideas of the church, they find science and they become even more committed to the science. True. Or they at least, they have no problems accepting the consensus opinion now that they don't have a threat of losing their community anyway. Right. That is true. Um, and you might, you might have a point about, um, like personality traits and kind of a predisposition towards certain tendencies. Um, Cause I, I always find it's kind of funny. Like you'll find communities of people and they'll tend to have like similar traits. Like uh, after I, I kind of fell out of my religious beliefs, um, kind of one of the biggest fears that I had was, you know, the loss of my community. Cause all of my friends were, people that I grew up with in the church. Um, and even for a while after I left, uh, 
I kind of held out some hope that they were all going to kind of join me and kind of see, you know, things like I saw them and they would all kind of go through the same process and figure figure out, you know, things the way that I did. And, and we would all kind of eventually come out on the other side. And that, that very much wasn't the case. Um, but eventually I did kind of start to discover other communities. Um, in fact, uh, whenever I was traveling for work, um, I ended up kind of being introduced to the atheist community in Kansas City when I was there. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, the group of people that you hang out with. Um, it's actually because of uh, Daryl Ray. Uh, whenever I hashtag dues paying member. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I think I've, I think I've let my membership lapse, and I need to hit them up. <laughs> but I mean, kind of discovering uh, another community that I hadn't really been in before. Um, I started recognizing a lot of similar traits. You know, generally, a lot of people in those communities tend to be like Star Trek fans and. Um, I like, there's just like a lot of people in the community listen to metal music. There's like all these similar things that, um, whenever I meet someone in one of those communities, it's, it's almost kind of scary how similar or how many things I'll have in common with them. Um, almost like we're, we're wired similarly. Um, and I have noticed that some people really do. It's, it's like some people are, have more of a struggle with changing their mind on things than other people. Uh, some people like, it's like they'll change their mind every other week, just depending on, you know, who made a better argument for something. And then, you know, some people will take 10 years to finally change their mind on something. Um, and that's, I find myself in both camps, depending on the topic. That's true. Like, man, I will, I will read about some interesting philosophical idea and just get on the bandwagon for a little bit and see where the ship goes. <laughs> I, I tend to find that I take a little bit longer. Um, like, I don't that easily jump ship, but when I do, it's usually like the buildup that led to that changing of positions was pretty substantial. And so once I've made a shift, it's, it's, it's a fairly, not permanent, but it's, it's a, it's a consistent one. Like I'll stay there for a while and it's going to take a lot to move me off of that position at that point. Um, but mm. I, I also don't really ever feel that committed, at least not now. Like I'm, I'm actually fine with the idea that I could completely change my mind on a lot of things. Um, it's just kind of, a that is so scientific, <laughs> but I mean, but it's, it's not that hard for me. Um, like that's exactly like what, kind of like you've summed up in your own personal experience what Thomas Kuhn talks about in the structure of scientific revolutions when he's talking about what science is and how science does science Yeah, was exactly what you said. I'm also kind of that way emotionally. Like it takes a lot to get me bad, but man, when I do, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's just kind of how I am as a person. I, I tend to be kind of slow to move towards something, but then by the time I do, it's you know, I'll, there's a lot of steam involved at that point once, once I've gotten there. So it's, it's really hard to change direction at that point because of the amount of work that took to get that momentum up. Um, but to me, like I noticed that tendency in a lot of like my, my brother has that, my dad has it, uh, my grandpa, um, I get different traits from my mom's side of the family that are distinct personality traits that are very different. I think I get more of a, a confrontational attitude from her side of the family where we're really quick to challenge. Um, and those are all things that I, I recognize as just kind of personality traits that are wired in. 
Um, and I do have other family members that it's, it's like they very readily adopt certain types of thinking. Um, and they tend to be a lot more religious and I'm just, it's, it's, it's like it almost goes against my nature to be that way. And so I don't necessarily fault them because, um, I, I am ready to accept the possibility that, you know, some people are, you know, they have predispositions that, um, isn't entirely their fault, you know, that they just kind of are behaving as they're wired. Which kind of goes back you know to your, me, I think yeah. that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So it makes, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah. With your determination, uh, de- uh, determinism arguments, which, um, have actually been really hard for me to refute. I will admit I mean, I'm all in. It, it's, I was uh, at some point. I'm sure we'll we'll get on this and really drill down on it. Not because, uh, and we mentioned this before we we started recording when we got together. There is an interesting paradox in the idea of determinism that I don't want to go down on this show, but at some point I think it'd be really interesting to touch on. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can tie in my love of paradoxes generally. <laughs> that'll be all kinds of fun. But yeah, I agree that, like, there are things that make people committed to ideas. Right, the, the social aspect and, that you mentioned, the tribalism. Right, and I think that that those predispositions of commitment are where we need to address the resistance to science in this country. Mm-hmm. And maybe it can't be addressed, like you can't go in and, you know, start tinkering with the machine, perhaps. But, uh, like, why, what makes people anti-science? And, you know, we've we've talked about that social, the commitment to community, and you've talked about that commitment to change. We've talked about the ideas that science is not wholly reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, how do, how would, well, and then what's, I just mean, the general lack of understanding as well. Yeah. And, and, and feeling satisfied that you don't need to understand that. Mm. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a big one, um, that I tend to really know that, you know, from my previous experience in the church was, you know, one of the, the questions that I've gotten a few times from people from my childhood you know, more recently was, you know, does, doesn't that make you uncomfortable just like not knowing? And it honestly, it makes me less uncomfortable to not know than to know some of the conclusions that they've come to, um, because those to me are more problematic, but, uh, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm, uh, I know, I know that people I love are going to burn forever. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's comfortable. Yeah. That's at least I know it. it. Well, and to me, there's just like, if you allow that kind of thinking of, of just accepting things without evidence, uh, based on faith or, you know, what have you that to me, that's a lot more chaotic in my head. Like there's, that makes me uncomfortable because then there's really no filtering system for, you know, what, what do we accept as reasonable to believe and what don't we? It's just a matter of what, 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 uh, particular dogma do you happen to subscribe to? And I, I, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, because to me that seems fairly arbitrary. So maybe there's even a comfort aspect, um, 
to how I am. Maybe, maybe I find the most comfort in my conclusions uh, because to me they seem to be the most sound. I don't know. Um, I mean, it, that goes, that kind of just that teases with the idea that, uh, oh, what's the best way to say this? Like, you don't get to choose what you believe. True. Um, both, uh, and we keep saying pro-science, like somebody that's, you know, really big on intelligent design and has read of all, had read all of Michael Behe's books. (laughs) Right. And, uh, oh, what's that guy, that mathematician guy that straight up annoys me to call in? Oh, oh, oh. Stephen, oh, I'm not going to think of it. Anyhow, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like to think of them as the the four horsemen of the uh, apocalypse, but only for, you know, intelligent (laughs) design. And um, like somebody listening to that every time you and I are like, and so when you're anti-science and they're just all like, I'm not anti-science. Right, they have a different understanding of what what is science. You know, when when I say anti-science, I mean like when you are on the contrarian side to the consensus opinion of science in a relevant field, right? That's what I mean. And I also acknowledge that historically it is those people on the fringe that ultimately change science. Well, but, but usually they don't. Well, you have to also kind of consider why they change science. Um, right. And if it's, if it's contrarian because of, some kind of a motivation to prove that something's true, which in the case of intelligent design, it's an ad, it's basically advocating for the idea that there is a an intelligence behind you know the design of the universe. Um, but that Gross. that's different than someone you know saying, well, your understanding of um, physics is fundamentally flawed because you can't account for these things, and I can with this model that makes better, more accurate predictions. That's that's different. Um, it's not necessarily an agenda to prove something that you already believe necessarily. It's it's trying to substitute a, a less um, capable model with a, a superior model that it does a better job of accounting for how things work. Am, yeah. am I off base there? I, mean, I don't think you're off base. I think that, I mean, of course, you know, we're preaching to the choir to... <laughs> The, in, on 99% of the the songbook here. Um, I think that, like, I'm, I, was, I was thinking of, like, scientific situations in history that are really kind of, like, that typify this, this situation that we're talking about. A good one's plate tectonics. Um, the guy that discovered plate tectonics, when he published his theory and the evidence supporting it, it was roundly rejected by the consensus opinion of geologists. Uh-huh. And that was, you know, in the 20th century. Right. That's not old news. And it took many, many years for people to continue to find, like, just like we've talked about, eventually the fringe opinion became the useful opinion. But, I mean, it wasn't necessarily breaking the... It, it wasn't in contrast but, to, you know, the process of science being methodologically natural. 
in that right, the diff- looking for natural explanations for things, which is what intelligent design breaks. It, it doesn't utilize methodological naturalism. It imposes a supernatural explanation, and that's why it's anti-scientific. That it's because it's there is no utility in in you know basically saying that there's a superpower that you know that can change the rules exactly uh, so that that to me is what is fundamentally anti scientific about it right the thing that was scientific about plate tectonics is he didn't come to like it wasn't like he had grown up in a community where they said the Earth used to be one big continent. And it's clearly not now, so something happened, and then all science was against it, and he just squirreled away and squirreled away at the data and finally proved that his community, those old outdated beliefs were in fact justified. Like, that's not what happens. Right. And that's not what happened in that situation. Um, there's not a situation that I can think of, and I'm, I'm there are, like, I only do this casually. I'm not a science historian. <laughs> right. I'm um, definitely not. But... But I've I've read a few books, um, <laughs> but there's not a situation I can think of where somebody was like, well, you know the the anim, animist traditions of my tribe made me believe X, and modern science didn't believe X, but I went out and proved X, and now all modern modern science accepts that. Like, yeah, there's a difference between having an idea and going about and proving it, and then. Bet- there's a difference between that and being taught an idea of an archaic tradition that looks like all of the myths everywhere else in the world, but yours turns out to be scientific. You just have to prove all of the scientific consensus wrong. Right. Like that's not ever how things have washed out. Uh-huh. I just can't think of an example where it's washed out that way, particularly and Christianity is, a great place to look because there's such a predominant opinion that that should be the case. Like if Christians are so certain that they're right, they should be overturning the scientific consensus in a lot of places. Well, except that their, their explanations are, they're anti-scientific. I hate to say that again, but it's, it's like when you, like I talked about before, you know, when you reach the end of your knowledge and you use God to fill in that gap, that's not explaining how the process works. And then if somebody then later comes back and it is able to naturally explain that process, then that invalidates the God explanation because the God explanation has no explanatory power. It doesn't give you any insight into the mechanics. It's just an excuse. I think we, yeah, I think we talked about it last time. Yeah. We just use the example of flipping a coin. Right. And like the odds of flipping a coin is 50 50. But if God wants the coin to be a certain way, you could always be like, well, God wanted the coin to be that way. The chances of God succeeding are always one, no matter what the claim is. Right. If your claim comports with reality, and then you're like, if you say, well, you know, God wanted the world to look this way the chances of that happening are trivially true because it's going to be true by, you know, definition. Right. Like if God wanted the world to look like it was 13 point, the universe to look like it was 13.5 billion years old and the earth to look like it was four and a half billion years old, but it's really only 6,000. Right. That's how God did it. I I mean, even if you kind of, um, if you looked at it to me, it's, it's that kind of thinking that God wanted it to be this specific way. 
um, is kind of looking at it backwards. Like if you were to imagine like a cup, uh, a glass of water in a parking lot and you have like rain or something. Uh, So you have rain falling all over the parking lot and each one of those drops, if each one of those drops is a possibility and you are of the perspective of being in the cup and one of those possibilities lands there, then you could look back at that and say, wow, there was an intent here. The water drop landed right here when it could have landed anywhere else. This was intended when really all those other possibilities existed, but you can only view it from the perspective of the possibility that resulted in it landing in that cup. You know, it's painting the bullseye around the arrow after the Right, fire. right. You're just looking at it backwards. I, I, We couldn't have existed any other way, otherwise we would have. This, we, the, Hashtag determinism. <laughs> the way we are is, is how things had to, had to play out. Uh, and if it had played out differently, we wouldn't be here to, to look back on it. Um, or maybe something else would be there looking back on it. Who knows? Um, but to me that, like, all of the arguments of, of design, um, when you look at all of the design flaws in, you know, in life, uh, to me, that's just, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a very bad designer if that's the case. Um, but I mean, I get it. If you're, if, if you want there to be a higher power, maybe that explanation, you know, speaks more to you than a naturalistic one where I I'm the opposite to me a natural explanation is far more comforting because I can't imagine somebody being in charge of all the horrendous things that happen um to me it it makes a lot more sense that horrible things happen because nobody's controlling it now I I mean I'm sure you are I'm sure we're on the same page here but uh, you know I do want to stress like there are serious you know Christian philosophers and philosophers of other religions who aren't anti-science. That's true. And who and who are asking very you know well thought out and reasoned questions about reality and f- fitting that into a theistic framework. Like there are really really smart people, but all of them to a man that I'm familiar with are like, "Oh yeah, evolution's the case." Like they're the, I, I'm not finding like, and maybe that's, you know, again, me being selective and cherry picking my bias, but I'm not finding in the philosophy of religion side of the big, great debate and great discussion. I'm not finding this anti-science streak. Like they're happy to use science mm-hmm. as it's discovered to talk about their theism. And I think that that that's much more interesting and appropriate. Yeah. Um, Arguably the vast majority of scientists are, religious <laughs> yeah so, like you mentioned that last yeah. time and, and like what we're what you and i are talking about here is the very concerning development of this lay person anti-science trend that is happening in this country right where i mean i still think like ultimately like it comes from identifying with the community right and it, and it is that tribal identity that drives their acceptance of ideas. Which you're kind of right about, because I, I'm starting to really, and I've seen it before, but not maybe quite so distinctly as now, of conservatives who 
don't really adhere to a lot of the evangelical Christian culture. Um, like they're, they're a different brand. Um, because like the culture I grew up in was, you know, kind of your, your stereotypical, um, you know, G rated language, uh, you know, <laughs> um, you know, never says anything, uh, even remotely sexual kind of a thing. Um, but like conservatives now, especially like hardcore Trump supporters, um, it's, it's like, it's a different tribe and it's, it's not necessarily completely rooted in evangelicalism. Although I think that there is, you know, elements of that in it. Um, it's almost like the tribe supersedes the the religious influence. I think it does. I and and I think that we've known this for a long. Like there's been it, within Christianity, there is a large push and pull between the idea of Jesus as a socialist mm-hmm. and Jesus as a king. Right. Without you know, of course, I'm I'm saying this outside of the box. I think Jesus is a dead man. <laughs> um, right. If in fact he, I he dabbled was. in the idea of mythicism for a while, but at this point, I'm I'm pretty unconvinced. I'm not sympathetic with the idea that Jesus never existed as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am sympathetic with the idea that that's about all we know. Yeah. But but with those people, like there's a lot of people in Christianity. Like I have a lot of Christian friends that are very liberal, and they're like, we should be taking care of people. Mm-hmm. We should not be evicting 40 million people at the end of the month. Right. This is not what Jesus would do. Jesus would not ever, you know, be a part of that televangelist church. He would never be seen dead in Joel Olstein's church. True. And you're right. Or alive. There are a lot of Christians that fall into various tribes. Um, and I mean, I know several who politically align with me um, better than most people. And yet, you know, they are, uh, religious and I'm not. Um, so that, that clearly isn't the only factor or the, even the main one necessarily. Um, it's, I guess I just wanted to drill down on this to, 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 to put out there that like, I'm not, I don't, there are things I disagree with all Christians about, but this is not one of them. Right. I don't want to sound like one of those annoying atheists. Well, I'm not an atheist, <laughs> but one of those annoying non-believers that just thinks all Christians are the same and they're all dumb. It's like, I don't, I am concerned with the segment of Christianity that is profoundly and shockingly resistant to data. Right. And arguably that's not limited to just Christians. Um, yeah, in fact, I yeah, you're absolutely. I mean, right. I think that that group has kind of expanded, you know, outside of just uh, like young Earth creationists, um, because there are there are people that don't necessarily um, adhere to all of it, like I said, and they're still very opposed to scientific con- uh, consensus on on things. So, uh, but yeah, we've got we we, we got anti vaxxers in our house. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's the left side of anti science. Um, and oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just, I'm just kind of brain balling right now. Yeah. Maybe we've kind of, uh, exhausted our, what, what other points think, did you have? Um, well, I think, I think we've kind of covered a, at least like, like we've covered why the two of us, 
like our ideas on the anti-science in America. I think it that it, it, it'd be appropriate, and I think that's already in the works. Like we're, we're you're looking at some guests that are you know antithetical to both of our positions, mm-hmm. and um, I think that it would not like. I am comfortable with giving those ideas space because I don't, that doesn't mean I hold them. Right. But at this point, yeah, I think I've exhausted like all of my underlying understanding, you know, my underlying ideas about why that occurs. Have you got anything else that comes to mind? Well, not, not necessarily. I guess what kind of comes to my mind is, if we kind of have like a, a basic understanding of, of, you know, there being uh, a bit of tribalism uh, happening and that, that being probably a pretty major contributing factor. Um, what are some ways that we can build bridges with other communities? Because I think that that's, that's always kind of been my intent on discussing things with people that I disagree with is you know, for one, to better understand where other people are coming from and always with the hope that they can better understand where I'm coming from. Because even with people I very much disagree with, I've, I've had a number of conversations where the more we talk, the more we start to realize that we have a lot in common, especially on, you know, our intent, maybe just our our understanding of how to get where we want to get is different or we have different you know, different ideologies as far as how to accomplish very similar goals. Um, but I think that's, that's really the big thing is, is learning how to have conversations with people where instead of being more polarized at the end of the conversation, um, I guess what I would like to do is, is learn how to be, at least figure out, you know, how we can figure out what we, what we share in common and build bridges on that. And, if nothing else, maybe we can start to meet more in the middle. And because I think that we're very divisive uh, right now, maybe more than I, I remember ever being, uh, at least in my lifetime. I'm sure that there's been plenty of other times, you know, when our society has been very divided. But for myself, um, I don't think I've ever felt further from people that I disagree with. What do you think? Um, I, I, I don't know what else to try to do. (laughs) Um, like I, the idea of writing off segments of the population to me is very unappealing. You know, I'm, I'm a member of the, the, the Oasis community at Kansas city. And one of our ideas is that people come before beliefs. Right. And I also remember that I feel like I might've said this or it might've been elsewhere. I was talking about this previously. Like I've been wrong about a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. and when I've been wrong, it is when people have treated me with grace that I have been better for it. Right. And it would, I, I, I want to make sure or do a good job, and I may not be doing, I may have done a terrible job in this podcast, but ideally I would like to treat those people that I think are mistaken with grace. Right. I, I definitely do frequently a bad job 
<laughs> building bridges with people. Um, I mean, because it is so easy just to write people off or especially when you see something as, as being ridiculous, just to call it out. Um, and even sometimes it can feel pretty rewarding to do it. And I won't, I won't say that it's always useless because I've, I've seen public conversations happen like in debate form where, you know, someone just totally ripped into somebody else's views and probably absolutely didn't change that person's mind, but it did change my perception of that person's argument. Um, so I won't say that that's entirely useless, but as far as, you know, actually trying to understand people better and get them to understand you better and maybe, um, warm up to ideas that they don't currently hold, um, maybe that's, that's not very effective. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I do quite a bit of that myself. It it makes me think of Daryl Davis. He was the black musician that would go and befriend KKK members. Mm. And uh, like, at least according to the documentary, like it's called Accidental Courtesy. Yeah. Daryl Davis, Race in America. He got 200 KKK members to leave the organization Mm. because he interacted with them. Right. And treated them. He gave them that grace that I was talking about. And that's just something that, Man, I have tried to do that. It's harder to do in social media. Just that act. True. It is easier mechanically to argue for the sake of the audience. Yeah, especially when you know people are watching. Right, that's what you were talking about. It's like sometimes you're not arguing with the guy to prove, to, to correct the guy. Right. You are arguing with the person at the other end to show all the people following the argument that they aren't rational. And I mean, it does work because that's worked on me. Um, I have had my position changed a number of times and not, not just with like, you know, Christian versus atheists debates. Um, I've, I've had people, you know, currently with views that I hold uh, have, you know, their arguments absolutely ripped apart and then, lowered my confidence in that that idea and i don't see that as a bad thing um so i i see it you know there is a time and a place for it but um it also doesn't really do anything for that person they just kind of become collateral damage in that uh ripping apart of ideas and i don't that doesn't make me feel good no no because i mean they matter too um although arguably if they're doing a lot of damage with bad ideas like you know spreading information that's actively harming people then you know and they they end up being collateral damage then maybe so be it but now you're talking about an interesting moral question we should tackle that some other time yeah it's like when is that okay (laughs) right when is it okay to you know essentially emotionally gun someone down for the sake of preserving a, a, a better idea right true maybe that's and i i think that it's easy to forget that that needs to stay in your mind because I have forgotten that and I have hurt people. And that's not something I'm proud of. It's true. And I have been wrong in conversations and they were on social media with somebody that was extraordinarily effective at dragging me through the dirt for my wrongness for the sake of the audience. Right. And having been on the receiving end of that, you would think... I would be less interested in it because it, nothing good came from that. 
like I can recall a specific conversation and I still feel hurt by the memory of a conversation where I was indeed wrong. Like I was not, I was wrong on the idea of, you know, what tools you should use to persuade other people in a conversation. Right. And some guy was like, you can't do that. That's not ethical. And I just straight up get grilled. Right. And that still sticks with me today. I still hurt because not because of the wrongness, although the wrongness was wrong. But yeah, I was, I, I was the kind of guy we're talking about. Like I got gunned down in the, the street emotionally right. for the sake of the audience. Well, and maybe, maybe, maybe intent has a bit of um, a factor there too, because I would feel worse about ringing somebody out who meant well than somebody who is actually trying to manipulate people, you know, for whatever kind of gain, um, you know, like the Peter Popoffs of the world. Um, you know, when sure. those people are, you know, it'd be hard if, if those people are legitimately, you know, scamming people out of their money, then I, I guess I don't really care about their feelings very much. Um, cause I know if I were, you know, I don't know if, if it were me, maybe I would kind of expect someone to do that to me. I guess philosophically, like if I were to want to hang my hat on a particular coat and rack, <laughs> um, it would be to still care about Peter Popoff. Like, I think that my determinism implores me to be compassionate in those cases. Now, it doesn't mean I think that we should, you know, allow those ideas to propagate. Right. And I think that there is a real, um, a real dilemma that we're talking about here on if, if the only way to prevent a dangerous idea from propagating is by emotionally scarring someone, when is that ethical? Well, and I, I mean, maybe it's a matter of uh, how you do it. Like if you just simply expose what somebody is doing then did you necessarily scar that person or did they kind of do that to themselves? Right. And I think that is a, that, that's an important distinction. But like if you were just to, you know, make Peter Popoff want to kill himself <laughs> because he was sharing bad ideas, that seems like that's an easy place to be like, no, that line's, don't cross that line. Well, we, we, and so, we, we kind of know how that played out with, uh, um, you know, uh, the amazing Randy. Uh, exposing him, uh-huh. he just kind of continued on. I mean, it didn't seem to even really phase him. But you know, I I think narcissism is a whole nother like node of this conversation that that we're going to end up with a that, four hour podcast. <laughs> well, let let's not because you know it's, I got kids and whatnot yeah. still. But like, it is something to consider: is how like. We, we've been talking about societies and individuals' commitment to community as drivers of beliefs. But I think that, that narcissists are a unique driver and kind of an outlier in a lot of the forces and trends that we're talking about. True. Because that's not... And I think Peter Popov is one. Yeah. Cause, like I, and I think that narcissism is dangerous. I think that it hurts people and needs to be addressed by society. Right. How is a different 
bag of, you know, can of worms. Right. But hey, I mean, if you're out there and you're not a narcissist, or at least not largely, because <laughs> I mean, arguably anyone, if you look at the, the traits of narcissism, everybody has a degree of that. Um, it's just a matter of if you like have really, really disproportionately high degrees of it uh, when it becomes right. really, uh, really dangerous. But I mean, if, if you're just a regular person and you disagree with us um, and want to have a conversation, I definitely welcome it because some of my favorite conversations I've ever had were with people who I didn't agree with. And by the end of the conversation, we had a very different understanding of each other than we started with. Um, I think those are my favorite conversations. And that's what kind of helps me grow as a person. And I think that that's what kind of brings society together. Because what we're doing right now is is very much the opposite of it. And I actually ha- yeah. actually did have that pointed out to me <laughs> that uh, I, I was contributing. And maybe they weren't they, maybe they weren't wrong. Maybe they actually had a point. Even if the ideas are wrong, it doesn't do us a lot of good if we lose our society saving the right ones. Right. Valid. I mean, that's a... It's, it's, there, there comes a point where, like... I mean, I don't know. I think, I think that trying to make a statement that gets any more detailed than that runs into the problem like there are many cases where it's not okay and there are many cases where it is like it would be better to bury the hatchet and all of those cases are a case-by-case kind of situation there aren't a lot of good hard and fast rules otherwise we get into stuff like cancel culture and shunning and yeah true that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> well shall we call it a night yeah, I, after this delightful conversation i think so on that note if you would like to have a conversation with us uh, please visit our website at analyzepodcast.com and click on the become a guest and just fill out the form and uh, we'll get in touch with you uh, and hey while you're there click on the uh, become a patreon and uh, subscribe so we can not pay out to do the podcast and actually maybe break even because that'd be nice but <laughs> I, I'm not looking to make a profit here. I just want to I want to do my hobby and talk to people and not have to pay too much for it. So if I just get a few subscribers, I, maybe I, I won't have to. No, I'm not going to stop bugging people because that's where the exclusive content's going to go. I'm going to keep bugging you to keep subscribing because that's that's what's going to make it successful and us. Uh, it'll allow us to devote more time to it. So uh, hey. Thanks for joining us this week. uh, We went a little bit longer, but I I think it was still an interesting conversation. Uh, And if you agree, disagree, let us know. I'd like to hear your feedback. Otherwise, um, we will talk to you next week. See ya. Talk to you later.